You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading of your holy and sacred word. We thank you, Father, for... Uh, recording and preserving these words of Jesus spoken on this occasion. We ask, O oh Father, you will bless us with understanding this morning that, Father, you will walk with us and open this amazing passage to our hearts, Father, and open our hearts to this passage that really in many ways brings us uh, really very deeply into the heart of Christ. And as we come to the heart of Christ, we recognize that we are also coming to the heart of you, O Father, and to the heart of the Holy Spirit. We recognize that you are always in concert as you uh, work uh, and work out our salvation. So, O Father, we thank you for that. Teach us and instruct us in these deep things, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning what I want to do is um, take another look at some of the things that we looked at last week, because last week... um, the message was long. I think it felt like it was long, and still there was a lot of things that weren't said. And this morning what I want to do is take, a, take another look at this, come at this from another angle, and um, in coming uh, at this from this other angle, I think it will set us, set us up very well to take a look at verse 27 in the first part of verse 28. So I'll just begin with the context like we did last time. And this time what I want to do is as we move through, especially as we move through the words of Jesus, uh, to look through, uh, to look at it with the eye of the impediments that would keep us from following him. Or uh, we could say it this way, we'll look at it with the eye of uh, the obstacles that often get in our way of being able to follow this, uh, 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 this word that Jesus gives us this morning. So this is not an easy passage of Scripture by, uh, by any stretch of the imagination here. Uh, so let's begin. In verse 20, we see that some Greeks were showing up at the feast, the Passover feast, and um, they come to Philip, and they tell Philip, we, we desire to see Jesus. And uh, last week, I, um, I mentioned, you know, the significance of this text is, is it can't be, it just cannot be overstated. And uh, I mentioned also that I'm really indebted for some of the insights I'm sharing with you right now from Leon Morris. Uh, Leon Morris wrote a superb commentary on John. It's been out of print now for some time, and it's it's been on my wish list, and I'm just blessed here 
recently with a copy of it. And um, he develops this. He shows the significance uh, of this, the fact that these Greeks are showing up and desirous to see Jesus. What is the significance? Well, the significance of it is the world is now beginning to come to Jesus. The significance of these Greeks, and I talked a little bit about that last week. Well, the, you know, the, the, the term that's translated here as Greeks in our, in our uh, Bibles is a broad term. It can mean people that are literally from Greece. It could mean that. It could also mean just Gentiles, Greek-speaking Gentiles. Um, so e either way, what we have happening here is um, folks from the world are being drawn to Jesus. What's so significant about that? Well, Jesus has taught us in John chapter 6 that no one comes to him unless the Father draws him. Unless the Father draws them, uh, they're not going to come. Well, here they are. Uh, they've, they've shown up, and Jesus' ministry has largely been to the lost sheep of Israel during his earthly ministry, hasn't it? Uh, we get that more out of uh, the other gospel writers than we do out of John, but uh, his, his ministry is primarily to the lost sheep of Israel. And now here he is at this final Passover, and these Greeks are showing up, and they're desirous to see Jesus. And again, let me emphasize what I said last week. They're not just desirous to see him from afar. Perhaps they've already seen him from afar. Uh, they could have seen him clearing the temple, for instance. Or they may have seen him uh, in Bethsaida, up in uh, Galilee. They may have seen him uh, preach, uh, but hardly had access uh, to his person. Uh, what's in view here is they, they want to get together with him. They want to sit down and they want to spend time with him. And any, any moment that he could spare for them would be precious. And how does Jesus respond to this? Well, it, it's, it can be strange at first, because here we have these folks that are coming and they want to see Jesus, and Jesus responds. I mean, Philip and Andrew come to Jesus. They tell him there's these Greeks who want to come to see you. And Jesus responds in verse 23, the hour has come. And uh, it, it's been said by many that one of the markers that Jesus recognizes the hour has come is the fact that they're here. He's been waiting for this, almost as if he's been waiting for this. Now, how does Jesus respond? He says, truly, truly, I, well, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Last week we saw that's, that's his work on the cross, and um, I covered that. We went into a little bit of detail about that, and I commend last week's message to you if you missed any of that. But in verse 24, Jesus speaking to a group of farmers says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he's speaking about the mystery that all people, whether you raise a garden or whether you're um, raising plants or you're in farming, whatever you're in, if no seeds put in the ground, there's not going to be any crop, is there? And it really is a, an amazing thing that an acorn that's sitting on your desk, and sometimes children will find an acorn and they'll want to give it to you, and you can, you can set it on your desk um, or wherever. It, it just is just an acorn on your desk, isn't it? But it's an amazing thing that if the acorn's put in the ground and, and a little bit of moisture is added to it, um, what comes out of it is an oak. Um, and Jesus is very masterfully using this. Uh, he is that grain of wheat 
that must go into the earth, and um, he will produce much fruit. But then Jesus gives this exhortation, if you will, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And um, basically what Jesus is saying is if a person desires to have Christ's salvation, he must be ready to give up all that's in the way. You must be ready to give up everything that's in the way. Any obstacle that may be in the way of that has to go, is basically what he is saying there. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that could be in the way, and I think maybe first on the list is um, love of the world. Why? What keeps us? I mean, if we, if we think about this from a couple different perspectives, what typically keeps people from wanting to embrace the message of Christ? Uh, it's, it's love of the world, is it not? I mean, um, and we might ask, well, what exactly is love of the world? Well, if you, you keep your place in John 12, for, in fact, you can lose John 12 for a few minutes because I want to take you through a couple of verses. And I, I would um, recommend you maybe you write a couple of these down. I'm not going to ask you to turn to every one of them, but First uh, John, if you go to First John, John's first letter, there we get from the same author that we're studying, we get a somewhat of an idea of what it is to love the world because he fleshes it out in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He'll flesh this out. What exactly uh, does he mean by love of the world? Uh, he says in verse 15, John, 1 John 2, 15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, what's meant by that? Um, we're not to love Mount Rushmore, or we're not to love the beauty of the Grand Canyon, or uh, the beauty of a sunset, or the stars. Uh, no, um, that's not what's in view here. Uh, John continues in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In verse 16, he sets forth exactly what he's talking about. For all that is in the world, and he gives us three things, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, we can read that and say, okay, um, all right, love of the world, okay, it's these three things. Um, verse 16, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. Well, what exactly are those? And so the search continues. Well, if we think about the desires of the flesh. I think we all have a good idea what that is anyway. But if you think about the desires of the flesh, uh, sin begins with a thought, doesn't it? It begins with a thought. There's an old saying, so a thought, reap an action. Uh, you know, good works actually begin with a, a thought as well, an inner desire, an inner desire. But that inner desire, if it's, if it's, um, if it's given nutrition, um, it will bear forth a work, won't it? It'll bear forth an action. And with that in mind, uh, keep your place in John 2, 16, and turn to Galatians with me. There's a couple of places we could turn to, but Galatians will get it done for us. Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting with verse uh, 19. One of the reasons I like to do this is to show you the Bible interprets itself. I mean, how do we interpret the Bible? We use the Bible to interpret itself. Uh, the more familiar we come, become with the Bible, the more we, uh, we see when we're in the dark about one item, we can 
run to another place where the same subject's taught more clearly, and we can get light from that subject to shine on um, to shine on the passage that's in question. If you look at Galatians chapter five verse nineteen, there the apostle Paul talks about the works of the flesh. Now, what is you know what is the work of the, what is a work of the flesh? The work of the flesh is a desire that is bore fruit. It's it, it's bearing fruit, if you will. Uh, and this isn't an exhaustive list here. We know that because if you look at some of the other vice lists that are in scriptures, there'll be other things mentioned, and there's other things mentioned other in other places. But it is a it is a, quite a list. And he says the works of the flesh are evident. Uh, sexual immorality is the first one. Of course, sexual immorality would be anything. It would be any kind of sexual activity that's apart from the marriage covenant of a man and a woman. Um, anything apart from that is going to be uh, under uh, the term sexual immorality. Uh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. What is exactly a sensuality? I thought maybe some might wonder about that. I, I, uh, in my notes, um, I have uh, here it's in, in the original. Uh, the word is behavior lacking in moral restraint. Um, sensuality would be any behavior that's lacking in moral restraint. Uh, if you look up the word that's behind the, the word sensuality, it's alsagia. And if you look up alsagia, you'll see that uh, it's behavior lacking in moral restraint. Some translations might have lasciviousness. I think that's the King James translation. Um, or licentiousness. You'll hear those words uh, sometimes associated with this. So it's any behavior that's lacking in moral restraint. Um, we can continue on. Um, we have um, uh, idolatry, verse 20, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. I have a note about that too. Um, Dicostasia, which is uh, it's a, it's a division. And it's, it's large in part the activity where a person would try to turn another person's heart against somebody where a person would try to turn another person against someone. Uh, that would be dissension. In fact, uh, it's the hard attitude that causes people to be angry at one another, not to like others, or to view them as enemies. Um, in our country right now, we're, we're seeing dissension on a massive, massive scale right now. It's breaking up families, actually. Uh, this vaccine is destroying families. Uh, I don't think we can really blame it on the vaccine, though. It's the hard attitudes that are already present in the family that are seizing hold of this, and it's exploding, and it's dividing families. So I don't think that we could blame the, ex the external for it. It's an internal heart problem uh, that's happening on a massive scale uh, in our country. We, um, we need to see this for what it is. It's a work of the flesh. It begins with a desire of the flesh, uh, we have um, divisions, envy, drunkenness, um, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so there we have uh, the desires of the flesh. And if we're wondering what the desires of the flesh are, they're those kind of desires that are in our hearts before we carry out these kinds of works that are uh, being explained by the Apostle Paul, because if you look at verse 22 of Galatians 5, uh, there he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And you'll hear me quote this all the time. 
I, I memorized this verse. I didn't memorize verses 19 and 20. I probably should memorize those too, but uh, how many want to rush home and memorize verse 19 and 20? Uh, probably not many of us. But verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there's no law. So that's the fruit of the Spirit. And you can see it's in opposition to uh, works of the flesh or desires of the flesh. Now, if we go back to John 2.16, we're, we're thinking about love of the world. We're thinking about what exactly does John mean by love of the world. We see first love of the world consists of the desires of the flesh. And secondly, it consists in the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes. What are the desires of the eyes? I, when I think of that, I, the first thing I come to is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Um, you don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 4, we have an account of the Holy Spirit leading Jesus out into the wilderness. He's been without food for 40 days, and he is being submitted to the unbridled assaults and temptation of Satan himself. And during this trial, if you will, in verse 8, we're told that the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, there's a classic temptation of the desires of the eyes. There you can have all of this, Jesus. It's kind of funny the evil one is talking to the one who already owns all of those things uh, and tempting him uh, to um, want to sin against the Father. Um, another thing that comes to mind in how we can commit this sin is uh, in Daniel. You know, I think about, um, well, you know, let me save Daniel for a few minutes. Before we, before we go there, let's look at Ecclesiastes 5. I would ask you to turn to Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes, if you go to Psalms, you've gone too far. Psalms, Proverbs. We'll get to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's good to know where these verses are. You can write them down, and I would, um, I would encourage you to write them down and look at them later. These are, these are really strong. Um, there's a lot of strength in, in God's Word in helping us uh, with temptation. In verse 10, here Solomon is going to teach us the, the folly of the desires of the eyes. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. That's about the truth, isn't it? Of course it's the truth. It's God's inspired word. And, um, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you've ever been caught up in that, I was caught up in that for many years as a businessman uh, prior to coming to faith. And the fact is, I mean, the more you make, the more you want. That's really, because it doesn't satisfy your heart. It really doesn't. Um, and we can justify our, our avarice with all kinds of things. We can justify our greed with all kinds of things, and we do. The bottom line is it doesn't fill us up. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Um, notice, notice Solomon, he, he brings us all out. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, the, the, 
think about what Solomon's getting on. Well, what do we do when we've made so much money that we can't spend it all? Uh, we build a rocket ship and we get in it and we fly 66 miles above the earth. I mean, that's about what we do, isn't it? I wouldn't know. I mean, I don't have a rocket ship in the yard, but um, you talk about some of these pursuits that um, it's, it's the more we have, the more we're going to have to the more we're going to have to answer for. Let me share another text with you in Luke. Let's turn to Luke with me, to Luke 12. I want to share one text with you that really ministered to me, uh, especially at a point in time when I was caught up in some of this. Uh, just personally, I share a little bit of my own personal walk with you as, I've, as the Lord was bringing me to saving faith. There's a, a verse in, in Luke 12, verse 48. And there's a truth that's embedded in this verse that we need to keep in mind. Um, if you look down in that verse, uh, you see where Jesus says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Um, I can remember that verse hitting me so hard, it was like a hammer. Um, and um, at one point, a fellow that was ministering to me while I was still walking in darkness. He, uh, at one point, he uh, he pointed. We had we had a music store over in Calcutta, and he pointed to the inventory uh, in that music store, and he said these words to me. He said, um, "His his um, slang word for me was bad dude. He was a, a just a wonderful African American fellow from from Akron. You've heard me talk about him before. Um, the man's like an angel to me." But he, he said to me, he says, man, bad dude, all the good Lord has given you and um, you're telling me, and he was trying to get me to go to church. He was telling me you can't give him an hour of your time a week. Um, that's not the gospel, but that's, I, I guess it is kind of the bad news of the gospel he was giving me. Um, it, sharply, it sharply convicted me um, at that time. And I remember really spending a lot of time with that verse. But, but Jesus, says, Jesus does something else in, in John, John chapter 12 that we need to take into mind. If you look at verse 13, you know, someone in the crowd says to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to the man who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you. And he said, well, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who, is, who lays treasure up for himself and is not rich towards the Lord. Um, that parable so beautifully um, sets this up of where the desires of the eyes, if we follow them, where they will ultimately take us. Uh, Psalm, you don't need to turn here, but I want to read, a, I want to read from Psalm 119. Verses 36 and 37, um, where the psalmist gives us a word on these lines as well. 
Uh, the psalmist says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. and Give me life in your ways. Um, in verse 36, he says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Um, it's good to know where these verses are. Uh, so we have the desires of the flesh, which is a very strong, um, it's, it's such a strong magnetic pull that we can't break free from it with our own strength. You won't. You can't. Um, we have the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. And in John 2.16, we have the pride of life. That's the third thing that he shares with us. And the pride of life, if you look at John 2.16 again with me, some of you will have a footnote after life. And it may say in your margin, uh, possessions. Um, that's because the word could be translated either way, pride of life or pride of possession. And with a little bit of thought, I think you, you'll come to the conclusion it makes no difference which way. Um, because it can be, it can be, it, it can be pride over something we've achieved. That may be something that we've achieved athletically, if you, if you will. Um, the pride of our life, our life's achievements. It could also be pride of possessions. Um, and here's where I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you don't need to turn there. I'll give you a break from turning everywhere. But, um, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, is, gives us a great illustration of what not to do here. Um, we look at chapter 4, verses 28 through 30. Um, here uh, we read the words, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now all this would be that second dream that Nebuchadnezzar has that Daniel interprets for him. And um, we're told at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar's walking on the roof of his palace uh, overlooking Babylon, and he says, verse 30, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? In other words, he's standing on the roof and he looks at the gloriousness of Babylon. And it, indeed, historians tell us it was glorious. Uh, it was absolutely stunning and glorious. But he looks upon it, if you will, in, uh, with pride of possession and pride of life both. And he says, Is this not uh, the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Um, that's an expression of the pride of life. That's, that's what it looks like. Um, verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The king has departed from you. And you shall be, or the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be uh, with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You see, this is not working out too good, is it? Um, it's not working out uh, too good at all. Uh, these are three categories that John gives us for love of the world, and these things will keep you from uh, letting go of life in this world. And what is Jesus teaching us? And back to John chapter 12, he's teaching us to let go of that, isn't he? It's one of the most difficult things that that I think we do in this life is to follow Jesus' directive. Back to John 12, verse 25, when he says, whoever, whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. There's such a strong um, magnetic pull on our hearts to want to embrace what we can see, feel, touch, and measure, isn't it? Uh, and furthermore, um, you know, 
our life in this present state, which is the next point uh, that I want to make here, uh, what, what stops us? What keeps us from following Jesus in this verse? What keeps us from letting go of our lives in this world? What stops us from hating our um, uh, life in this world? And one of the things is it's just quite, as I said last week, it's just love of the kingdom of darkness. You know, uh, in our sin, we love the kingdom of darkness. I mean, that's where we're at. And even after we come to saving faith, there's still a remnant in us, isn't there? There's still a remnant in us that has to be battled. Uh, we have to put up a fight against it. But I want to take that just a little bit further this morning. Um, I, I would say it's, it's not only a love of the kingdom of darkness. It's a love of life in the present state that it's in. Let's think about the present state that we're in right now. Is the kingdom fully consummated right now? In other words, has Jesus completed his kingdom? Have we arrived at the new heavens and the new earth yet? Um, have, we, have we seen evil dealt with yet? Um, no, we're in transition right now, aren't we? And um, love of life in this world seems to me that we can even be caught up we, you know, we don't have a taste for the kingdom of darkness, so to, to, to say that the, the Lord is taking a lot of that away from us. But we do have this contentment to want to live in this partially consummated world. It's not yet what Jesus wants it to be. And there should be a longing on our part to long for that kingdom to come. I mean, when we say the Lord's Prayer, um, what, what do we say? Uh, Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? It means that there's a world, if you will, that the Lord is going to bring in, that the Lord is ushering in. And if we're in Christ Jesus this morning, we're already a citizen of that world. But it seems to me that we can get kind of stuck to where, okay, we recognize we're a citizen of that world, yet there's a, there's a vacuum of longing for that world to be complete, for that world to be ushered in, if you will, uh, for uh, Jesus to uh, bring this to consummation. In, in Isaiah 65, 17, we read the words, For behold, I created new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. I, I, think, I think there's a great gravitational pull on our hearts for the things that are going on right now that we don't want to let go of. Uh, but we must let go of those. I think to, to continue to grow in our walk with the Lord, it's going to require us to let go of these things. The second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. And in Revelation 22, verse 20, there's a prayer, Come, Lord Jesus. Now, uh, here's a good diagnostic question for us. If we're caught up in this, this, this will expose it. The simple question. How fervently have you prayed over the last week or month for the consummation of Jesus' kingdom? And compare the fervency of that prayer with the fervency of all of your other prayers. You follow where I'm at here? Are we praying for the completion 
of this glorious kingdom? Are we desirous for this glorious kingdom to come? Are we in full recognition that we're citizens of that kingdom, that we are here, but we don't belong here? Or are we still clinging on to life in this present state? Do you follow me? I fear as I look at my own heart and I ask the Lord to search me and know me and reveal my hidden faults, I fear I'm quite guilty of, of just that. Um, and that's an impediment. It's an impediment. We must believe that the kingdom of God is infinitely better than the kingdom of darkness, and we must believe that the kingdom of God is, that the new heavens and the new earth are infinitely better than what we have here. Now, why else would we want to hold on so tightly to what's here if it's not that we don't really believe uh, what Jesus is promising us? Someone will say, wait a second, I've been walking with Jesus for years. Yeah, we could be walking with Jesus for years, but do we believe this promise? Do we believe the promise? Do we believe that the new heavens and the new earth, do we think about the new heavens and the new earth? Do we occupy, do, do we allow our minds to occupy eternity? Do we allow our minds to go, Jesus, what are you building? What is it? What is it going to be like? Fill my heart with it. Um, it's one of the reasons why I want to, we get done with John 12 here, I want to do, I want to do a, a, a full series on prayer. And one of the, one of the, one of the, I don't have, in my mind, I'm still working through how to go about it. But we're going to have to look at adoration. We're going to have to look at promises. We're going to have to look at all of these things so that we can grow in these things. The, the last thing that I would say that keeps us from following Jesus' direction is the preservation of our lives, the preservation of our lives. Jesus says whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I talked a lot about that, the fact that hate means that we love the life and the, the eternal life more than we love the life now. I think, I think I've made a good case that we've got this backwards. Um, now, we need to be very careful with this. You know, the desire to pre preserve life is a godly desire. Now, it's one of the problems that's happening in our culture now is life is becoming cheap and people don't care about life. And that the, the, the more you don't care about life, the easier it is for you to take someone's life. And we, that's not what Jesus is teaching us to do here. That's not at all. The desire to preserve life is what undergirds our hospitals. That's what undergirds the medical practices that take place, which many of you are employed in. You know, it's the desire to not only preserve life, but to preserve the quality of life. Uh, that's, that's, not, um, that's not what's in view. But what is in view is we, we have to, we can't, you know, even our lives, our very lives, uh, they, they must not be kept for ourselves, but we need to offer them to the Lord to do with what he wants with them. Uh, that's the impact of this. You know, uh, everything. Uh, I can remember uh, when I come to faith and when it really started to become clear to me that the Lord was calling me into ministry, I can remember saying, Lord, everything I have is yours. Um, you know, we don't have a music store no more. We, there's a lot of things that Tammy and I don't have anymore. And, and that's going to be the case. Uh, sometimes the Lord will leave you right where you are. That's where he wants you to serve. Then that's fine. But don't hold on to what you have right then and there. Be, it, this, this posture is a posture that says, Lord, it's all yours, including my life. You see why this is so hard to do? Because we have all these other things pulling us. we got a remnant of sin in our life that's pulling us, of love of the world. It's there. Don't ignore it. It's there. We need to be aware of it. You know, we have the, des we have the desires of the eyes. 
Um, you know, filmmakers are playing off the desires of the eyes all the time. There's not much you can watch on TV without sinning in that way. You really don't kid yourself. I mean, whatever you're watching on TV, very little of what you see on TV is not going to be uh, leading you. To, you're going to be committing the sin, the desires of the eyes. And the more we expose ourselves to it, the less sensitized we become of it. And this idea of self-preservation, and we hold on to that. Um, now, now we're ready to look at verse 27. Look what Jesus says there. Now is my soul troubled. There's, there are so many things we can glean just from those words right there. Now is my soul troubled. It's a strong word. It means severe emotional distress. And what is the source of this distress? Jesus knows he must suffer the just penalty for the sins committed by all he came to save. You know, as a thought that occurred to me this week while I was preparing for this, is that the more merciful he is, the more he has to suffer. The more merciful he is. I mean, what great love. I mean, how many lives did he have to die to, to atone for? How many? How many thefts? How many cruel acts of hatred? I mean, Jesus came to save sinners, murderers, prostitutes, drug addicts, adulterers, idolaters, racists, human traffickers, gluttons. The more merciful he is, the more sin he assumes. Every time he says your sins are forgiven, he assumed more debt to pay, didn't he? And we see him doing that all over the place. He's a merciful God whose hands are wide open for everyone to come to him. How many millions of deaths? The wages of sin are, are death. How many millions of deaths did Jesus suffer to pay? This should... This alone should motivate us to declare war on sin in our lives, should it not? Um, we have to be really cold not to. And what does Jesus say? In the, in the ESV, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit disappointed that there's two question marks. I, I don't take the position that after hour there should be a question mark there. Um, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? First question and only question. I think, Father, save me from this hour is a petition, not a question. Why do I think that? And I think the King James translation, translators felt that way as well. They only have one question mark. Uh, many of the modern translators have two. If there's a question mark, it could, it could lead us to believe that Jesus is saying, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour, to where he's, 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 he's asking rhetorical question and he's answering it and resolving it all together. I don't think that's what's going on. I'm not alone in that. There's a lot of commentators that don't think that's what's going on. What I think's going on is he is in absolute anguish. What does Luke? This is a Gethsemane moment. It's not in Gethsemane, but it's a Gethsemane moment, and it teaches us that he, he walked like this for a period of time, wrestling with this horrible assignment that's been given to him. In one sense, it's, it's the most horrible assignment that anyone could be given, isn't it? To be punished for every infraction of the law. Uh, that every single person he came to save committed. Could you imagine how much sin that is? 
A horrible assignment. Oh, his soul is troubled. It's troubled. It's coming apart. And Luke tells us in Gethsemane, his capillaries in his arms were bursting and blood was pouring forth from his vein or from his pores. He's troubled. And what is he saying? What shall I say? I think what he is saying, if we use the words in Gethsemane to interpret these words, he's saying, Father, save me from this hour. It's, it's, it's just, if there's another way, Lord, take this cup from me. I think that's what's going on here. And he says, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. And in verse 28, when he says, Father, glorify your name, what does he say? He's saying, thy will be done. Now, here in this verse, we have a collision. We have the assignment that Jesus has given to him colliding with the will of the Father. And that's where we're going to find ourselves every time uh, that we're tempted, where we're tempted not to carry our cross, aren't we? So as we look, why are these words? One question I'm always asking of Scripture when I'm studying Scripture is, why? You know that question that the three-year-old's famous for, why? 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 I like to be a three-year-old when I'm studying Scripture. I want to know why. Why? Why? Why, Lord? Why are these words here for us? Well, one, they teach us the anguish that Jesus, that Jesus came to. Um, they, they teach us his anguish. Um, that is for sure. But also they teach us his love for the Father. Because you see, as the anguish of this horrible assignment collides with the will of the Father, what wins at the end of the day? The will of the Father. And why does the will of the Father win? Because Jesus loves the Father more than he even loves his own life. This is what we're called to. We're not called to love Jesus with a, just a little bit of love. Um, we're called to love him more than anything else to such a degree that if we were to compare our love for him with the love we have for even our children or our spouse, it would be as if we hate them. It's a comparison. Jesus never calls us to hate our family. It's a, it's a, it's a Hebrew way of stating um, that love is to be so great that we love him more than we love anything else. Well, how do we grow in that love? Verse 27 furnishes us an answer. When we look at this love, we see that this love is not just a love for the Father. It's also a love for everyone Jesus came to save. I love that praise song that goes, oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. So here we see that we find in this um, the power to carry our cross. How are we going to pick up our cross? How are we going to do this? How are we going to grow to the point where we love Jesus more than we love anything else? Well, it's as his, as his love wins our hearts and conquers our hearts, and as we grow, it's going to be equal to our love for him. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. And our obedience is a display. It's an expression of our love for him. 
As our love for him grows, our obedience grows with it. That's a spiritual, that's a spiritual law. So uh, as we grow in our love for Christ, here's one place where we, you know, having spent so much time on this verse, I, I can tell you from personal experience that uh, your love will grow, grow from Christ as you meditate upon this or drink upon it, however you want to put it, feed upon this verse. Uh, but also... Uh, a living faith in Christ. If you back up to verse 26, Jesus says, "Anyone, if anyone serves me, notice the conditional, the if makes it conditional. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And here we have this idea of service and following. Two crucial words here of saving faith. If we want to know if we have saving faith or not, there's two crucial words we need to ask ourselves. Are we serving him? Or are we following him? Um, and this, distinct, this distinguishes true saving faith from easy believism, uh, easy believism, which is just mere uh, intellectual assent or mere mental assent uh, to a few propositions. Yeah, I, I believe Jesus uh, exists. Uh, yeah, so does the devil. What's the difference between you and him? You know, these are the questions that we need to ask. Does the devil believe that Jesus exists? Does the devil believe Jesus walked the earth and lived a perfect life? Does the, de the devil's got the gospel down. He knows it better than we do. What's the difference between a faithful follower of Jesus and the devil? It's these two words, service and follow. The devil does not serve Jesus, and he does not follow Jesus. So... Um, we can mentally assent to a couple of loose propositions, or we could have been in the church for a good long while and now mentally assent to a full gamut of propositions. We could, we could be great theologians. Still not. We need to look at, no matter how sharp you are theologically, is there service and is there following going on? That's what we need to ask ourselves. Are we serving Him? If we're not serving Him, we're not following Him. Is there service and is there following? Uh, easy believism falls short of trusting Christ in, that, in the way that it fails to serve and follow him. Uh, and I could put it another way, easy believism seeks to save its life in this world. Easy believism is seeking to save its life in this world. That's what we do when we clam up. We get an opportunity to share the gospel and we don't do it. What are we doing in that moment in time? We're saving our life in this world. What's going to make us bold and what's going to make us love it? You know, we don't want to be like bulls running into a china shop here. We don't want to be callous and overbearing. Um, we won't be as our love in Christ grows. And hey, you know, you, you'll have unbelievable strength as you grow uh, in, your, in your love for Jesus. So in conclusion, the life of a believer in this world is not one of honor, greatness, and ease. But in view of this world, it's a life of shame, dishonor, great struggling, and suffering as we, as we um, hate our, our lives in this world, if you will, to love our lives in the next. Um, J.C. Ryle writes these words. I think they're good for concluding. He writes, He who loves the life that now is so much that he cannot deny himself anything for the sake of his soul will find at length that he has lost everything. He, on the contrary, who is ready to cast away everything most dear to him in this life, if it stands in the way of his soul, and to crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts, will find at length that he is no loser. In a word, his losses will prove nothing in comparison 
to his gaze. Amen. Heavenly Father, these are words that are so difficult to follow. But Father, you've given us verse 27. There we see our Savior struggling and wrestling. We see the collision between your will and the assignment that was given to him. Father, we see, we see in this great example, but more than an example, we see tremendous grace for us as we look to our own lives and we look to the assignment that you have given us. To walk against the grain of this world is no small thing to do. It's, it's very difficult. But Father, you give us the strength. You give us the strength and you empower us. And here's one place where we find the strength to pick up our cross daily and to follow you in humble and faithful service. No, Father, we pray that you will conquer our hearts with your love. For we recognize it's, it's, it's love for you and faith in your promises. That's the only thing that will break the chains that are pulling us uh, towards love of the world and towards self-preservation and towards loving life just in the status quo as it is now. So, Father, we pray that, Lord, you, you will work in our lives and our hearts, Father, and work mightily for your glory. Amen.